Chapter Twenty One of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Song of the Skylark. When a lark leaves the ground and rises with jerky flight into the sky, singing lustily all the while, we are astonished to hear him pour out his music while he is laboring so hard. A man would find it enough to run or climb without attempting to sing as well. How does the soaring lark manage to keep up his song until he is lost in the blue sky? Even that is too little for him. He loves to rise and fall again and again, singing all the time. Part of the explanation, the easiest part, lies in the structure of a bird's breathing organs. When a man breathes, he expands the chest, and so draws in a little fresh air to mix with the much larger quantity of vitiated air which the lungs already contain. By no effort can we change more than about half of the air in the lung at a single inspiration, and in ordinary breathing we do not replace more than about one-seventh of the air. There is no means of sweeping out the human lung with a through draft. But in the bird, all the air in the lung can be changed at a single inspiration. The lungs are prolonged into capacious air sacs, of which there is no trace in man, and these contain far more air than the lungs themselves. Thus, when the chest of the bird expands, a large volume of air is drawn through the comparatively small lung, and the air sacs are filled with almost pure air, which ventilates the lungs both as it enters and as it leaves the body. It is a common thing in zoological laboratories to fill the air sacs of a bird with some stiffening liquid. Paraffin wax will do, or cocoa butter, or plaster of Paris, or a fusible metal with very low melting point. The injection runs far beyond the limits of the thorax to the farther end of the abdomen and into the neck. It even penetrates most of the bones. Of course, the injection will not run unless a vent is made for the air to escape by. If the humerus or principal wing bone is broken across, the air will escape that way. Such an injection gives convincing information as to the great volume of the air sacs, which fill a large fraction of the body space. These great air receptacles seem to act like the windbag of some old-fashioned musical instruments and can, without being refilled, keep a small pipe sounding for a long time. They may also enable the bird to aerate its blood comfortably without taking frequent breaths. But at this point we become aware of a dreadful and irremediable gap in our knowledge of the flying bird. We do not know how frequently it inspires, and there is no ready way of finding out. A bird at rest inspires very frequently, more frequently than other vertebrates. But the flying bird, the skylark, if he could only tell us how he manages. After the visible mechanism of the skylark's song has been allowed for, questions suggest themselves as to the supply of heart power and nerve power, which is implied in full song during hard exercise. Why cannot a man sing when running fast? We answer that running makes us lose our wind. Active exertion quickens the inspirations, and before long, even the quickened rate does not suffice. If the violent exercise is unduly prolonged, we may find ourselves hardly able to breathe at all. But this difficulty of breathing is only an external symptom. It indicates a disturbance of the bodily functions, which would not be completely provided against by greatly increased lung capacity. Sir Michael Foster has explained to us, in his Reed Lecture on Weariness, what this disturbance is. Muscular effort exhausts some part of the living matter of the muscles. It sets up a greater demand on the blood for oxygen. The blood draws more oxygen from the lungs and pours more carbonic acid into them. Strain is put upon the nervous mechanism which regulates the blood flow. 
But whenever muscles contract, other things besides carbonic acid are poured into the blood, things which act like poisons upon muscle and nerve. The brain becomes stupefied, the heart distressed, and what we attribute to simple loss of wind is largely, perhaps chiefly, due to a temporary blood poisoning. There are organs in the body, such as the skin, the kidney, and the liver, whose function it is to remove these poisons and render them harmless. When the eliminating organs get vigorously to work, the distress abates, and the runner finds his second wind. Sooner or later, if violent exertion is kept up, the poisons get the upper hand again. The muscles, brain, and heart begin to fail, and now the failure is more lasting. The body has not only become fatigued, but poisoned by poisons of its own making. Training strengthens and enlarges the muscles. It also improves the adjustment and, so to speak, educates the vascular, nervous, and eliminating organs. There have been Morris dancers who, by long discipline, have become capable of dancing, singing, and playing the fiddle at the same time, and this for long together. In the Skylark, the adjustment is so good that even great and prolonged exertion does not disturb the respiration. The continuous prolongation of the song of the skylark would be hard to understand except on the supposition that it is maintained by the incoming as well as by the outgoing breath. Poets call the skylark him and the nightingale her, but all singing birds are males, with the not very important exception that the females of a very few species, canary, lark, bullfinch, etc., especially when solitary, are able to produce a tolerable melody. Song is primarily the allurement of the male. With this he secures the affections of the female, and with this he encourages her to persevere in her toilsome duties of nest-building and hatching. But no one can observe the lark long without being persuaded that he often sings merely because it pleases him. His song may be heard at any time of the year except during the three or four months of deepest winter, and, of course, family affairs do not occupy his attention anything like so long as this though two broods of young larks have to be reared in one season. Why has the lark such long claws to his toes? Is it a provision for running more easily on grass, the tread being lengthened to suit the yielding grass for the same reason that snowshoes are lengthened, far beyond shoes intended for firm ground? Animals still smaller than the lark, which have to run about on grass, sometimes have legs of amazing length in proportion to the size of the body. The weight of a harvest man or a daddy longlegs is insufficient to press down a single blade, and if its legs were not very long and jointed in many places, it could only travel over a meadow by continually ascending and descending, or else grasping every bit of grass that came in its path. End of chapter 21